This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. The following content is explicit. It's Tuesday, March 13th, 2018. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mary Wilson, usually a producer on this show, but today I'm sitting in for Mike Pesca. Pesca is out, and it's not entirely clear if he's on vacation or in hiding because of an ill-advised tweet. Something about Judy Garland and munchkins. I don't really want to get involved. It set off some Twitter reproach. Anyway, if the PC police are real, they are coming for you, Pesca. Look alive. Eyes on the road, not on the phone. In Pesca's absence, I've been thinking about Colombia. Actually, long before Pesca's absence. I went to Colombia in January for one week. It was my first time in South America. And it's one of those trips you take where you're like, oh, I'll just move here. You know, you become thoroughly enchanted. And even after you're back home and back in your routine buying 12-roll packages of toilet paper, even then it takes like a few weeks for the charm of the place to fall away and for you to forget that you were ever interested enough in another place to leave this one. Colombia is like that. I'm not explaining this well. Columbia is like a club that Bill Hader's character Stefan might describe on SNL. Columbia has everything. A favorable exchange rate so you can do a lot on the cheap. Gargantuan trees covered in moss and ferns and vines and flowers. Like the tree itself is its own discrete ecosystem. Meals that contain four different kinds of meat and are not meant to be shared. Bus rides through the mountains that'll be detoured because part of the mountain has fallen on the road. And so the bus switches to an unpaved road. And then you're delayed once more because the only throughway goes past Senor So-and-So's corral. And it's time to put the cows away. And so the bus waits with everyone else while passengers get good and familiar with the patient look of cattle. People who come up to you in Medellin because you look like a foreigner. And they want to say welcome and thank you for visiting our city. Young women whom you've just met at a salsa club who step and slide like they've inherited hundreds of years of muscle memory. I knew nothing about Colombia when I arrived there. I knew it would be warmer than New York. That's what I knew. But after a few days, you go to a few museums, you go on a tour, you start to download books about Colombia onto your phone. You start to absorb some history. Oh, right, Escobar. Okay, FARC. Okay, paramilitaries. What are paramilitaries? Civil war for how long? Until when? Oh, last summer? One minute, I'm learning that a single drug trafficker was responsible for the deaths of more than 500 policemen around the same time I was born. The next minute, I'm sitting in a pristine botanical garden, watching young Colombian families set up picnics on the grass and sip frozen coffees from a drink stand. It is bewildering how a place suffering from so much death and destruction could look so relatively normal now, even though the threat of violence is not gone. How are these people around me at this park not utterly shell-shocked? That's what I would think when I was there. When I was in Colombia, I would stare at people, thinking, it is a miracle you're alive. What is your story? My guest today spent years recording the stories of Colombians 
in the course of her work as a human rights activist. Her name is Maria McFarland Sanchez Moreno. She wrote this book, There Are No Dead Here, and it shook me out of my Stefan-like, gauzy, faraway fascination with Colombia. And it held up all the pieces of the story that take longer than a museum tour to understand how the civil war in Colombia evolved over the past 40 years, how it got muddied by the drug trade, and how the U.S., and the U.S.'s war on drugs came to be both a help and a hindrance to Colombia, while people there were crying out desperately for peace. In the spiel, I'm going to take some time out for Mary Wilson. It's not me time, it's she time. Mary Wilson is the name of one of the women who took the political establishment by storm last week in the Texas midterm primaries. She's a Democrat running in a solidly Republican district, and she is outperforming all expectations. But then, of course, she is. I will explain. But first, my interview with Maria McFarland Sanchez Moreno. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Maria McFarland Sanchez Moreno's book, There Are No Dead Here, tells several stories. It recounts the recent history of Colombia and how an ideological struggle became muddied as violence begat more violence. And then how idealistic people put their lives on the line to expose institutions corrupted by violence and drug trafficking and how those people reestablished the rule of law. Maria, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. I knew nothing about Colombia's history until really recently, so I think it will help people if they get a little bit of background. Can you give us the quick and dirty history of Colombia from about the 1940s to the period that your book focuses on, like the 90s, the early 2000s? Sure. So Colombia has been at war for for decades, since the 60s, basically, in a war involving left-wing guerrillas. The most well-known are the FARC the military, and over time, right-wing paramilitary groups who claimed to be defending people from the left-wing guerrillas. But over time, they became deeply involved in drug trafficking and, in fact, became the biggest drug lords in the country. You ended up working in Colombia as an investigator for Human Rights Watch. How soon into your work did you learn about the three men you write about in this book, a human rights activist, a prosecutor, and a journalist? It took a while as I got to know the country, but one of the main characters, Ivan Velasquez, became quite prominent while I was covering Colombia in 2006 because he started what became known as the parapolitics investigation. So he was an investigator on the Colombian Supreme Court, which had jurisdiction to investigate members of Congress. One day, Ivan Velasquez was sitting at his desk and he received a complaint from someone who said, look, these paramilitary leaders who are now negotiating with the government for peace, supposedly, are claiming that they have friends in 35 percent of Congress. Please investigate this. This sounds very disturbing. 
And most people would not have done anything with that because, you know, what do you investigate? It's just one statement. It's very hard to to put meat on the bones. And on top of that, it's extremely dangerous because the paramilitaries had a whole history of committing massacres and killings and all, all manner of atrocities. But Ivan Velasquez was this deeply committed person who believed that his job was to fight for justice. And he decided he would do what he could. And he started putting together old case files that the Supreme Court had on members of Congress. And he found all sorts of leads about links between members of Congress and the paramilitaries. And so he ended up leading these investigations that ended up convicting or charging a third of Congress with colluding with paramilitaries. And that became a big story. And I got to know Ivan as a result of that, also because the president began the smear campaign against him. So as Human Rights Watch, we came in to defend Ivan and the Supreme Court from these vicious attacks coming from the presidency. Right. Your book is about three main people. But I think Ivan, this guy that you're talking about now, I think he's my favorite. We, <laughs> we get the most information about him through the course of the book. He's a prosecutor who became an assistant judge. So even before he got that complaint, he had already done all this work as a prosecutor, kind of in the hotbed of where the paramilitaries were operating, where the drug trade was so intense. He's just so likable. He's this like skinny, mustachioed guy. He smokes like three packs of cigarettes a day as he gets more and more stressed out about his job. It's really complicated to investigate the paramilitaries. They're, it's like investigating the mob. Can you explain why it was such a challenge for him to bring charges back when he was working as a prosecutor to investigate these instances of corruption? I mean, to us, it just, you know, in the U.S., it just seems like, well, you build a case, you bring charges, you take it to a court, boom, done. Why was it so complicated in Colombia? Yeah, a couple of reasons. One, because the paramilitaries were extremely violent and extremely powerful. And when Ivan Velasquez in the late 90s, as chief prosecutor in Medellin, starts conducting investigations into paramilitaries, the paramilitaries then start murdering all of his investigators. And within a course of about a year, 11 investigators who worked with Ivan got murdered. Um, and they start threatening many of his prosecutors. They threaten his wife. It's really dangerous. But the other problem is that they had tremendous influence even within the government. They had infiltrated the same group of investigators that that were getting killed so that many of many of the people who were working with Ivan didn't know whether they could trust their own colleagues. Eventually, the investigations that Ivan started as chief prosecutor in Medellin got taken away from him and got moved to Bogota under less than clear circumstances. And he was very unhappy about that and you know, attributes it to some kind of political or less than correct approach to, to what was going on. You know, the other factor here is that society as a whole was in a state of denial about the paramilitary's crimes. And that's part of the reason the book is called There Are No Dead Here. It's a reference to a quote from Gabriel García Márquez's A Hundred Years of Solitude, where they're talking about a society not accepting that thousands of people have been killed in massacres. And they're just saying, no, there are no dead here. The fact is that in the late 90s, so many Colombians and early 2000s, so many Colombians were very focused on the violence by the left-wing guerrillas mm -hmm. that they looked away from the violence by the paramilitaries, mm -hmm. even though the paramilitaries were committing atrocities that were in many cases even worse than the widespread kidnappings by the FARC. 
you know, many, many of those massacres were committed against very poor people in remote regions. And it was easy for some sectors of society to dismiss it, to say that the victims, oh, must have been working with the guerrillas, must have been collaborators. And certainly to deny that there were any links between the paramilitaries and the military, as in fact, it turned out there were. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. To underscore for people the danger for Ivan Velasquez and his colleagues and his family. Can you tell the story of the threat his wife received when she was at work? She gets on an elevator at work. Yeah. Yeah. So when Ivan Velasquez was chief prosecutor in Medellin and he was conducting these very successful at the time investigations into the paramilitaries, one day his wife is going back to work from lunch and waiting for the elevator. She gets on the, the elevator and a man gets on with her. And suddenly she notices that he's pressed some buttons and the elevator is not stopping anywhere. It's just going up and down. And the man starts talking to her and he tells her, don't you know that there are some things that cannot be investigated and you need to tell your husband that. And then he lets her get off the elevator, but he says something like, I'll see you at English class later. Which to her is chilling because she was taking an English class and it just shows that they knew everything that she was doing. Of course, that's terrifying um, because they know that these people will act on those threats. Can you explain how in the context of Colombia's very long war, how the notions of what is right and wrong could get kind of skewed for people? How could a former army soldier start collaborating with paramilitaries that were engaged in these atrocities, engaged in drug trafficking. How did people justify those choices? Yeah, I mean, everything gets distorted because you're in an environment where, for one, it's extremely dangerous to do the right thing and to do your job correctly. It means standing up to organized crime, which has managed to sneak into everything around you. You don't know who to trust. And if you do your job As you're supposed to, you might risk your life. And on the other hand, you have so much wealth and power available to you if you collaborate with these groups. So I think it's not surprising that after generations of this happening, for many people, you're just you know, choosing the path of least resistance. And, you know, then you have the emotions that go along with having grown up in in an environment that's at war and where your relatives might have been killed or kidnapped or where you're living in fear or where your land was taken from you. And so there are people who feel attached to one side or another based on who victimized them. And so people will justify the actions of the paramilitaries because they'll say, you know, the, the guerrillas were kidnapping my family member or they killed my relative and, you know, the other way around, too. A lot of Americans know, at least vaguely, the story of Pablo Escobar, who is important insofar as he he did become like the the biggest drug lord for the cocaine trade. And then the cocaine trade became such a huge part of how the paramilitaries were able to continue to have to have control over so much of it was, you know, ultimately found out the government itself. So a lot of Americans know Pablo Escobar. I don't think so many people here know about what followed Escobar's death. Why do you think that is? Yeah, those stories haven't been told. And, you know, Escobar is this very, he was such an extreme figure and it was all about him. And you've had lots and lots of books and movies made about him. 
but he was killed in 1993. And the story of what came afterwards is more convoluted. It involves more characters. And those characters haven't been quite as flamboyant in their behavior, even though they are often just as murderous and cruel and um, ruthless. But there just haven't been as many books and, and movies made about it. I think it's complicated. I think people have had trouble wrapping their heads around it. Do you think any part of the reason a lot of people don't know about what follows Escobar, especially in the U.S., is because the U.S.'s role in Colombia is a lot more ambiguous in the years after Escobar? Well, I think the U.S. role in Colombia can definitely be confusing and hard to explain. And the thing is, they've talked about it as the war on drugs. But in the late 90s, the U.S. started Plan Colombia, which was this huge package of aid for Colombia, overwhelmingly military aid. And supposedly was meant to fight drugs, but it went to a military that was, at the time, to a significant extent, complicit with the paramilitaries. And like I said, the paramilitaries were the biggest drug traffickers in the country. So U.S. aid was going to ultimately work with the drug lords (laughs) against another group of guerrillas who were also involved in the drug trade. If you look at it, it doesn't make sense as drug policy, even if you believe in the war on drugs, which I don't. Maria, you are the executive director of the Drug Policy Alliance. How does this story connect to the work you do there? So my work in Colombia really introduced me to one of the most extreme sets of consequences of the war on drugs, which is all of this violence and corruption driven by organized crime, which is fueled by the illicit market and drugs. That really led me to ask a lot of questions about what the point was of the war on drugs, why the U.S. was engaged in it, and what the huge harms are in other countries. When I finished working on Colombia, I then switched over. I worked on U.S. foreign policy for a while and saw very similar patterns in Mexico and Afghanistan where you know groups are always finding ways around every effort by the U.S. to stop the flow of drugs into the country. Um, and again, they're engaging in violence and corruption to pursue their ends. Um, but then I also switched over after a while and became co-director of the U.S. program at Human Rights Watch, working on criminal justice, immigration, and national security. And there I saw all of the horrifying impacts of the war on drugs in this country and the way in which the war on drugs fuels uh, the criminalization of so many people, overwhelmingly black and brown people in this country, who are arrested in massive numbers for low-level drug offenses, often just drug possession for personal use. So you have more than a million people a year arrested for drug possession for personal use, being moved through the criminal justice system, then losing access to employment, Mm -hmm. housing, food stamps, all sorts of benefits. You know, this marks them for life and keeps them trapped often in in this vicious cycle. When There are so many other ways of dealing with problematic drug use that would be much more effective. You know, there's so much that we can learn from other countries. The U.S. has this ideological fixation on the drug war and on criminalization as the only way to deal with drugs. When other countries have public health approaches, countries that never criminalized personal use in the first place, countries that decriminalize like Portugal or countries like Canada that emphasize measures like supervised consumption sites and other 
efforts to reduce the harms of drug use without locking people up. So that's part of what led me to this um, place in my career where I'm focused on fighting to end the war on drugs. Maria McFarland Sanchez Moreno runs the Drug Policy Alliance. She's the author of There Are No Dead Here, A Story of Murder and Denial in Colombia. Maria, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. And now, the spiel. Call me by your name. Mary Wilson is this woman running for Congress in Texas. She only got on my radar because we share a name. She's a Democrat, a former math professor, a minister. She's running to fill the seat of retiring Republican Congressman Lamar Smith. Smith is the chair of the House Science Committee. Mary found his commitment to science to be underwhelming. Slate covered Mary's election after she made it to the runoff stage of the primary last week. Our headline was, Democratic Women Dominated in Texas on Tuesday. In earlier coverage, local publications had treated Mary's campaign as more of a benevolent backdrop to the real story. That story seemed to go like this. In a four-way Democratic race for a congressional seat that tends to go to Republicans, the guy with the money and the moderate message will probably win. Joseph Kopser was that guy. He had raised nearly $800,000. He's an Army veteran, a former Republican, and a board member of a business lobbying group that tends to support Republicans. So if Democrats wanted to pick someone who would appeal to moderate voters so that they might win a general election, it seemed like they would pick him. And he had the backing of the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee and the help of Joe Trippi, the Democratic consultant of great renown. I didn't know any of this until recently. I was not following the Texas 21st primary. But one week ago, I'm sitting around and my Twitter notifications start going off with mentions from people who are thinking I'm Mary Wilson of Austin, Texas. And they're tweeting at her because it's Tuesday night and she's pulling off this stunning win. And suddenly, right around the time I start paying attention to Mary Wilson, the story of her candidacy changes. Mary Wilson isn't in the background anymore as the unconventional candidate. She's the underdog triumphant. Mary ended up being the top vote-getter in the four-way race, ahead of that guy Joseph Kopser by just 2% of the vote. Remember how I said he had raised almost $800,000? She had raised 40000 so quite a coup. The ensuing coverage examined Mary's biography for clues about her electoral success. She's a former math professor. She's a minister. She's an out gay woman. She didn't go negative during the campaign. She's a new face. Wrong. Here's what matters. She's a Mary Wilson. Do you know how many Mary Wilsons there are in the world? Check the white pages. I found more than a dozen just in San Antonio. You go through the world with a name that common, it does something to you. There was a great story in the Austin American Statesman yesterday. In it, Mary's 22-year-old political consultant is quoted marveling at Mary Wilson's particular way with voters. He says, one of the special things about Mary is everybody remembers Mary. She's very memorable. Of course she is. She has to be. Mary Wilson's do not have the luxury of being milk toast. You are bored with us even before you hear from us. Oh, hi, what's your name? Oh, Mary Wilson, excuse me while I examine my cuticles and wait for you to say something interesting. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. So you're a math teacher. Have you run a probability analysis on this race? Uh, you know, sometimes ignorance is bliss. <laughs> <laughs> 
That's Mary Wilson from Austin, Texas, charming as hell and determined to be memorable. You know, yesterday on this show, Mike was talking about names and the way they may lend themselves to overpronunciation, a kind of approximated accent. Like when people are talking about the late Alexander Litvinenko. People might say Litvinenko or Litvinenko, or they might say Litvichima call it, which I'm sure would have bothered Mr. Litvinenko. But you can't even butcher the name Mary Wilson. That's how barely there it is. Try to mispronounce my name. You can't. I know people who have tricky names, and I never understood why they got so bugged when people would ask them to say their name a second time, like when they're introducing themselves. So you say your name a second time. You're getting two impressions for the price of one. What a bargain. Also yesterday on this show, Mike talked about actor Mahershala Ali, a great actor. Won an Oscar last year, Mahershala Ali. And yeah, it was probably really annoying for a young Mahershala to have to spell his name out for every teacher on every first day of school, and then in his 20s to break his name down into bite-sized syllables for the casting directors and the talent agencies. But guess what? That's the price of having a name that signals, I am the son of a prophet, and now he is deservedly famous, and no one will ever be at a production meeting being like, oh, didn't you love Mahershala Ali? Which one? Oh, Mahershala Ali from Moonlight, not Mahershala Ali from that little Sundance documentary, right? Are we talking about the same Mahershala Ali? Having a unique name is kind of like having a really symmetrical face. It's like Janet Mock and Oprah said once. Pretty privilege is real. Pretty privilege is real, girl. Just like the beautiful can skate on their good looks, the uncommonly christened among us are assumed to be interesting. Mary Wilson's have to work a little harder up front. It's like naming your son Sue, so he learns how to fight. Some gal would giggle and I'd get red, and some guy'd laugh and I'd bust his head. I'll tell you, life ain't easy for a boy named Sue. Same idea. Name your kid Mary Wilson, she will never take your attention for granted. And we Mary Wilsons learn early on that we're not particularly unique. Mary Wilson of Austin, Texas feels my pain. Because there are a bazillion Mary Wilsons in the world. <laughs> My own Twitter activity has become devoted, almost exclusively, to alerting people that they are adding the wrong Mary Wilson. There's the Mary Wilson who was in The Supremes. She's still touring and selling her books, so I get caught up in her Twitter storms every so often, and that's fine. She's fabulous. It's a privilege. It's a pleasure. There's a Mary Wilson who works for RTE, the Irish Public Radio Network, so every once in a while I'm fending off tweets from people who are flaming her for her political coverage. Y'all should lay off. She's doing a great job. To avoid online confusion, Our Mary in Texas goes by Mary Street Wilson on Facebook. Street is actually her original last name. Wilson is from a former marriage. And she decided to use the same double-barreled name on the primary ballot, too, so people would know it was her. I felt like I needed something that was a more distinctive identifier than Mary Wilson, because I even have relatives that are Mary Street or Mary or something In her own family. She's not even the only Mary Street or Mary Wilson, even among kin. So last Tuesday, when it was primary night in Texas and my Twitter was blowing up because a long-shot candidate named Mary Wilson was winning, no one was more surprised than the candidate herself. She had planned to take a couple days off after the election. That didn't happen. No, no, I'm barely sleeping, as it turns out. Turns out when when you do take first place and you upset the million-dollar candidate, people want to talk to you. I love hearing her say this. She's so amused by it. Like, huh, people are interested. Because we're not used to that. 
Even when Mary was fundraising for her campaign, which might be the most self-absorbed thing a politician does, even when Mary was asking for money, she was elevating other causes. Can you explain this to me? You had people match campaign contributions to your campaign to a charity of their choice. Is that how it worked? Yeah. Uh, well, I, yes. Yes, I did ask people to, to do that. And one of the things about politics that I've now seen more close up is just how much money goes into these campaigns. If, if we spend, you know, $100,000 on a, on a flyer or mailer or whatever, I look at that and say, how many people could have been fed for that money? Mm. Who could have had housing and shelter for a night, especially... I know, in, this sounds naive, know, but spells. do not underestimate her idealism. Remember, this is a Mary Wilson we are talking about. She is fighting for your attention, and life has taught her not to count on it. So she's knocking on doors. She's analyzing the district's changing demographics. She's thinking ahead. Even if she wins the runoff election, she'll face a Republican in the general for a seat that has been held by a Republican man since 1979. How is she going to appeal to conservative voters? Because Mary didn't reach 50% of the vote, she'll face this runoff election against the second highest vote getter, that guy I mentioned before, the guy who has raised so much money, Joseph Kopser. So let's evaluate. She beat him by less than 2% of the vote. Kopser has the backing of the National Democratic Party. And it seems like the kind of thing, like if I were the candidate, this all would make me go, well, crap. But Mary, intentionally or not, has this way of using it. If we're going to pick candidates before people actually have a chance to get to know candidates and then to vote on candidates, then really, is that democratic at all? And let's face it, if, if I can win on the primary night, win the night there, and be outspent 20 to 1, that would suggest maybe the DCCC pick is not the pick of the people. Here's the thing about this. Mary has liberal credentials. The Bernie Sanders backers are going to support her, so she's got that side sewn up. And so, in a clever way, she's sending a message when she says this to moderate voters and Republicans that while she's the more liberal candidate, she's not under the thumb of any national party. Her opponent is. But most importantly, Mary knows, as every Mary Wilson knows, that ultimately it's not about her. Even the most famous Mary Wilson on the planet knows this. Motown darling Mary Wilson is a supreme and wears sequins better than Liberace. And yet she will always be defined by her proximity to Diana Ross. It's not about us. It never has been. Why should now be any different? Mary's a minister, I mentioned before, and she was telling me about the sermon she gave on the Sunday after the primary. And she says it was about coming through dark periods and finding meaning after them so that even a dark night of the soul kind of has meaning because it's what you must go through to come into the light. That was kind of the gist of it. Huh. I would have thought that the theme of the sermon so soon after the primary would be like, oh, really a lot more upbeat than that. I mean, have you had a dark night of the soul recently? <laughs> I mean, you've been kind of riding high. Well, yeah, well, we're in the season of Lent. So uh, my sermons are not about me. They're about the community and the congregation and the season. Mary Wilson's runoff election is in May. She has the disadvantage of being a bleeding-heart liberal in a district rated by the Cook Political Report as likely Republican against a Democratic primary rival who used to be a Republican. But she has the advantage of having gotten to this point by exceeding everyone's expectations. And yeah, she was listed on the ballot last week as Mary Street Wilson, 
But I hope in the runoff, she goes by just Mary Wilson. I think it would make the rest of us proud. That's our show. The Gist is produced by Pierre Bienname, journalist, not Pierre Bienname, aviation supply specialist in the Marine Corps. Only the foolhardy mispronounced the name of Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcasts. And when they do, they get a stern rebuke from Steve Lichtai, owner of the Lichtai Lawn and Snow Removal of Northeast Iowa. Mike Pesca is the host of The Gist. He will be back Wednesday. Or will it be Las Vegas native Michael Pesca, senior sales engineer at Cox Communications? Umperu deparu dupru, and thanks for listening. Do you know what's crazy? Mary Wilson of the Supremes, born on March 6th, same day as the Texas primaries. It's the sisterhood. <laughs>